This is Ask Lisa, a podcast to help people understand the psychology of parenting, now in the midst of a pandemic. Psychologist Dr. Lisa Demore, author of two New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. And I'm co-host Rena Ninen, a journalist and mom of two. Some of what we talk about comes from raising children ourselves. Most of the time, I'll be getting answers to your parenting questions. So send your questions to AskLisa at drlisademore.com. Episode 50, How Do I Build My Kids' Confidence and Self-Esteem? You know, it's an adjustment for so many people, getting the kids back in school. And it's the little things like my son being able to bike to school. Like There's this mm-hmm. layer of confidence now that he's like the fifth grader who can bike to school. That's cool that he can do that. So he takes his bike every day and parks it there? He just started doing that. And, um, you know, it's exciting to see these little things that are actually big things now. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. It's uh, a letter we got is actually talking about building self-esteem and self-confidence. And it says, Dear Lisa, how can we talk about self-esteem and self-worth with teenage girls? What is it exactly? How can we help them to strengthen theirs? They can seem to be totally fixated on getting validation from other people or else they feel they are worthless. So how can we help them build up a sense of self that isn't only connected with such flimsy and superficial things as social standing or appearance? I think it's especially important for kids who aren't the most popular, pretty, or accomplished ones. I think it's a topic many adults struggle with too. So it would be great to plant a few seeds when kids are still young. It's a great idea. How do you do that? Where do you start? Oh, it's wonderful. Um, and it's so timely, too, you know, with the um, news about Facebook and Instagram having all these data about yeah. how bad um, Instagram is, especially for teenage girls, mm-hmm. you know, and how much it harms their sense of, you know, self-worth and value. So if this wasn't on people's minds before, it's certainly on people's minds now. And Let's talk through the girl thing, but let's just talk in general. Like, let's think together about self-esteem and kids and how you help them establish a, sur- a sturdy sense uh-huh. of feeling valued and valuable. Well, so when I think about this, what actually comes back to me is a story from my postdoc. So after I got my PhD, then you have to do a couple of years of postdoctoral training to get fully licensed. And I was working actually in an adult clinic, and I had this wonderful supervisor. And I had a case, um, a young adult, someone at the university, who was um, drinking way too much. She was an alcoholic, really. And she was cheating on her partner. And she was doing a horrible job at at her job. She was just like not, you know, didn't care about her job, didn't do well at her job. And she felt terrible. She felt really, really low. And my supervisor said something that was so compelling. He was like, well, it's good that she feels low. Like, if she felt good about all of this, like, that would be a problem, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he said this thing that has just held me in good stead for so long. And he said, you know, people feel good about themselves for the things they do well. Mm. And she's not doing anything well right now. So, of course, she doesn't feel good. And, and Serena, for me, anytime the question or topic of self-esteem comes up, where I always like to begin is the sense of, well, you have to have something to hang it on. You know, it can't just be your parent or your teacher saying, like, I think you're terrific or you're really wonderful, that the kid themselves 
has to have a sense of I do something well or mm. it's good or it matters. And actually, your example of your son riding his bike to school, mm-hmm. you know, I get myself to school. I mm. follow the traffic rules. I take good care of my bike. I wear my helmet. Mm. I lock it up. That is such a perfect example of I'm doing something well. I'm, I'm managing myself well. And it's tiny, but self-esteem is probably built on lots of tiny things. Mm. Where does self-confidence and self-esteem come from, especially when you're little. When you're an adult, okay, you probably have had ways to build it and see it crumble. But how do you get and instill that in a kid? Where does it come from? Well, it's interesting because there's actually a pretty clear developmental trajectory for kids around self-confidence and self-esteem. And so we can go back to earliest days. You know, one, two, and three-year-olds don't really think much about it. They're the center of the universe. They know it. They feel it. You know, they feel good about all that. Um, four-year-olds can start to feel a bit more fragile in terms of self-esteem because by four, we do kind of challenge kids' sense of being at the center of everything. You know, we do sort of expect them to start to be more of a a member of the organization that is the family as opposed to, you know, dictating um, Mm -hmm. so much of family life. And you will see in four-year-olds, there's almost like a compensatory, um, very high sense of confidence. Like they, they are often sort of um, braggadocious, you know, four-year-olds. Yes, like yes. I remember with one of my daughters, like we were driving, she's like, first I'm going to win the Olympics and then I will be a pilot and after that I'm going to, you know. And it was just like this like, you know, like wonderfully ambitious but like a little over the top. And, you know, this is where sometimes it's a huge liability to be a psychologist. This was a good moment where I was like, yeah, you really like sports, you know. And, and I, I didn't feel like I had to take it down a few notches. Because what happens is, as they hit five, six, seven, um, there starts to there starts to be a bit of a drop off in self esteem um, from what is typically in development a little bit of an over high confidence around you know three, three and four year olds, and and that drop off comes for a couple of reasons. One is they do get into school. Mm. And they start to compare themselves a little bit more. They start to you know sit next to kids who can do things they cannot yet do. Um, and then really, Rena, by third or fourth grade, so we're talking now eight or nine, we start to give kids more honest feedback. You know, that when yeah. you're in kindergarten, first and second, we're like, you're fabulous. Like, that's a great scribble. <laughs> you know, and then by third and fourth, we're like, eh, you know, I've seen you do better work. So, so part of what parents need to be prepared for is that it sort of has its own highs and lows that play out developmentally. So if you feel like, man, my kid was so super confident at four, you know, what happened at eight? Mm. Mostly it's like it's kind of a correction. You know, it's kind of a, you know, they're, they're starting to see the world more broadly and see their place within it. But that's right. That's the moment then when we want to make sure they have ways to feel good that they control. Right. So that's where things like having jobs you do around the house, being expected to be decent and kind within the family, um, you know, having responsibilities, the expectation that we start to put on kids that even if the work is easy or not interesting to them at school, they'll do it well. You know, so they may not feel good about the work itself. It may not be their cup of tea, but they can feel, you know, sort of take real pride in how they've done it. So I think that that's. If we think about creating a a foundation of self-esteem, what I would want parents to know is, you know, it's a little bit up and down wobbly no matter what you do in earlier childhood. But if you start to have standards and hold kids to standards that are fair um, 
ask them to do things that are within their capacity, praise them when they do a really good job, hold higher standards when they don't do a very good job, again, so that they can feel good about what they've done. That's where we start to lay the groundwork for good self-esteem. Oh, this makes me feel good. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, I just could not deal with doing the lunchboxes, you know, at mm-hmm. all. So I announced that my daughter became the CEO of lunchboxes. It was her job <laughs> to decide what goes into the lunchboxes. And then there's a bonus structure at the end where she would get LOL, a certain LOL doll if she achieved her, her, her you know, uh, doing the lunchboxes for the year. And you're right. Like giving her this one thing that I really at, at her age, my parents did for me, um, mm-hmm. gave her such self-worth and confidence. And she comes up with these ideas and she knows there's got to be, I will say at the beginning of the year, we fell off the cliff and there was Cheetos and we had to reevaluate, <laughs> have a reevaluation. But I get it, giving them something that they can do that they're proud of. But my son with the bike, my daughter with the lunchbox, I know the, I feel like I've just genderized <laughs> this, both of them here. Are there differences between boys and girls? Like, am I doing that wrong? Should I have reversed well, it? Give the boy the lunchbox and the girl the bike. <laughs> well, you'll probably be able to do that over time, right? And they'll both take on both, you know, yeah. that they'll they'll expand their capacities. Um, we do see gender differences. And, and what we see is actually that girls fall off a cliff. Um, so, you know, a self-esteem, you know, often can stabilize around third and fourth grade. You know, kids can figure out what they can take pride in and feel good about. And then something happens, and we know more than just a vague something, where girls hit puberty and their self-esteem just plummets. You know, boys not so much, but for girls, um, it is this incredibly well-established and really upsetting finding where they just... Um, start to feel really self-conscious, very aware of how they're regarded by the world, comparing themselves tremendously. Is it because and, their um, body's changing, yeah. Lisa? Like the hormones? I think a lot of it is that. I think a lot of it is that. And, and you know, one of the rules that we always hold in mind um, when we think about puberty in kids is that for girls, the modal age of onset, which is the most common age, you know, at which um, something occurs, is 12. Hmm. And then for boys, the modal age of onset is 14. You mean so, when puberty happens? Um, when it's most likely to occur in a kid. So yeah. there's kids who happen before or after. So it's not the average. It's like the frequency number. Mm-hmm. So it's highest frequency is 12 for girls. Highest frequency is 14 for boys. And it does happen, right, that suddenly the girls' bodies, here you are, you know, 12 is fifth grade. Um, the girls' bodies are suddenly a real object of interest. And their puberty is fairly public, which is not, mm-hmm. you know, so fun for them. And they do become very aware and the world becomes very aware. And they start to get feedback from the world about their growing, changing bodies. And they also are getting feedback from the world about how their bodies are supposed to look. Yeah. And um, and then add into the mix social media where we're now yep. learning about just how toxic it is. Like there's actual research that's come out of how bad it is for girls. It is. And and so it's not that boys can't have faltering self-esteem. Um, certainly adolescence is its own challenge. What I do think holds boys in better stead, and then we can think about how we can backwards engineer this for girls, mm-hmm. is that um, they, you know, by the time their bodies are changing, first of all, it's less public, it's less of a big deal. But they get to continue to um, move into adolescence and adulthood 
you know, when those things are happening, it's also when they're starting to hit high school, you know, when they start to look more teenagerish. And in high school, one of the beautiful things can be that there's a lot of stuff you can suddenly do. There's a lot mm-hmm. of clubs and activities and extras that um, some, you know, kids really school is right up their alley and they get a lot of, you know, pride and pleasure out of how they do academically. But as kids get older, the more um, kind of activities become available, which also then becomes more ways for them to feel good, more things for them to do that they can enjoy and take pride and pleasure in. So I think boys may have all of the um, upsides of not having such a public puberty and then all of the advantages of a broadening array of things they can do. Mm-hmm. I think for girls, what we can take from that is we want them to be doing a lot of different things that they find interesting and that they can feel good about to try to counterbalance the focus on their appearance. But what can parents do to build the kid's self-confidence? Because I feel like it, that those teenage years, I'm dreading like the moodiness because I remember it from my years, <laughs> not wanting to do what my parents tell them. How do you help them find things that'll build their confidence? What can we do? Well, one of the ways I've long thought about this and actually wrote about it in Untangled this way is I actually like to think almost like self-esteem is like a lake mm-hmm. that needs a lot of tributaries hmm. because sometimes the tributaries dry up. So it can be really hard on a kid if um, sports are their thing and it's their only thing and they're like a super soccer player and they're totally devoted to soccer and you know, these things can be very time consuming and then they get an injury or they get cut from a team And if they've got no other things going on, it can leave them very vulnerable. Mm. And and so what I would say to parents is, as long as you can diversify things that your kids do that they can feel good about and make them do them. Like I really, like if you're asking like, what if if the kid doesn't want to? Doesn't matter. I think parents can say to kids, you need to be busy. And we do know it is good for kids to be busy. Like it's always good for kids to be busy. You need to be busy. But we'll put out a menu of things you can do. Like, you know, we feel you should have a sport every season might be something a parent say, or we want you to have volunteer activities, or you need to be doing this job around the house, or you're in charge of your little sister, or, you know, there has to be, you know, kids can have choice. Mm -hmm. But sitting around on the couch watching TV and staring at social media is not really an option for an activity that's going to take up a lot of your time. It's not good for you, and it doesn't give you anything to feel good about. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on the Ask Lisa podcast. I love doing laundry now because of EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze are these eco sheets that look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless, so you don't have that drippy goo from plastic jugs. EarthBreeze is really tough on stains, even odors. And if you've got teens, you know about those odors. Dermatologists tested, hypoallergenic, and also free of bleach, dyes, and parabens. Fragrance-free option is also there for anyone who wants it. So what EarthBreeze did was they got rid of the unnecessary chemicals for a formula that's kind to sensitive skin of all ages, and that includes babies. And I love that I just order online and the shipment comes right to my door when I need it. So right now, our listeners at Ask Lisa can receive 40% off of EarthBreeze. That's right, 40% off just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash Ask Lisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and get your 40% off your subscription. 
earthbreeze.com slash AskLisa. Did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes? Luckily, one company is changing this standard for good. Bullen Branch Sheets, which you know I love, uses the rarest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. I have had my Bullen Branch Sheets for a while now, and I love them. They feel like butter. In fact, I am so used to them now that when I travel, as I often do for work, I take my Bolin Branch pillowcase with me and I put it on the pillow in the hotel room so I can enjoy that softness at least on my face, even when I'm not sleeping in my own bed. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bolin Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code ASKLISA at BolinBranch.com. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code ASKLISA. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I got the most amazing pair of bootcut black work pants that have been a game changer, all thanks to my stylist at Stitch Fix. The stylists understand your style, your size, your budget, and they do all the shopping for you. It took a couple of tries for the stylist and I to really see eye to eye, and once they did, it's such a game changer. I asked for a pair of black pants that make my legs look good, and also would look good with a blouse or a nice top. They really nailed it. And then they found another cardigan for me that really works. I also love that they show you different styles of how you can put these outfits together. I love that it feels like she can read my mind now and we've got a rhythm to where all I do is say I need this type of wardrobe piece and she sends it to me and it fits and it works. Styles that make you feel as good as you look. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash asklisa. That's stitchfix.com slash asklisa. Stitchfix.com slash asklisa. Welcome back to the Ask Lisa podcast. So Lisa... I know the flip side of this is without us realizing, we can unwittingly undermine kids' confidence. And and that's one thing I worry about too. What am I doing that could really diminish their confidence and affect them? It's interesting, right? Like I think about these transactions, like when a kid does something well um, or when a kid doesn't do something well. Adults respond, you know, parents mm-hmm. respond. And and I think a lot about these moments because they really are um, times when we can get it right or we can get in the way of what we want for our kids, which is for them to feel good. So so let's say a kid brings home a paper with a really good grade on it and good and good feedback from a teacher. It's not the worst thing in the world for a parent to say, Oh, good job. You did a really good job with that. Like, I'm so pleased. You know, that's not a horrible thing to say. But I worry that it's a missed opportunity because good job, I'm so pleased is like, yeah, you've made me happy. (laughs) You know, like you've made me happy. I think instead in those moments, we might say like, well, how do you feel about how you did? You know, and get them to talk a bit about it and then say, you should feel so proud. You should feel so proud of what you've done. So it's more that the parent stands back and kind of reflects on how good the kid should be able to feel about it versus the parent themselves feeling good and the child feeling good only because the parent feels good. Do do you remember that conversation that people had, like where everybody on the sports team gets a trophy 
And and it, yeah. it's just that whole conversation about that. How do you not just give them false praise? Because they know, right? They know when they've they really do. done and when, something amazing and when they haven't. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that that was sort of a um, a well-meaning flop, you know, this yeah. idea of like everybody gets a trophy. Like I think it was, it came from this place of like building up kids' self-esteem and rewarding them. And I think you're right. I think that the, both the data and common sense showed that to kids, they were like, yeah, whatever. Like that kid who did nothing got the same prize I got. So like yeah. my prize doesn't mean anything, right? So I think that the way we really make it real is that when kids are doing well, we admire and we say, you should feel so proud. You've done something quite remarkable here. I hope you feel really good about it. That can be a nice way to say that. I also do, really, I do, Rena, think it matters to kids sometimes when we say, also, you should know I'm really proud of you. You know, like that mm. that, they, that matters to kids. Mm. And so I don't want us to rob them of that. But then I think that it's also really okay when a kid has struggled Right. When they've maybe, you know, had a bad game or, you know, messed up an assignment. Mm -hmm. I think in those moments, if they're worried about it or upset about it, false reassurance isn't a gift. I, I think to say to them, yeah, you didn't have a great game. And we have to do it gently and tenderly and then say to them, what do you want to do differently? Or the kids who are doing what you wish you were doing how are they going about this in a way that you could learn from? You know, to really engage with the areas where they're struggling. Because when we do, here's what I really love about that. It means that when we say, okay, you just knocked it out of the park. You should be so proud. They can believe us. Mm -hmm. If we praise mm -hmm. them for everything, you know, even stuff that's really not impressive or doesn't take much work at all, then when we praise them for things that are really valuable and that they've done so beautifully, it doesn't matter as much. So go back to the, I'm worried about the negative, you know, coming from South Asian parents and, and there's a whole generation of us who, and not that my parents did this, but I think that parents can be harsh and particularly Asian parents. There's this, oh my God, you're so bad in math. I don't understand. You're so bad in math. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, like, I don't want to be like that. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, there is this generation of us who did hear that, you know, and there's no positive praise. It's just real. Like, so how do you walk that line of being real well, it's, and not being It's interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's pretty real. And that, that can feel that sounds to me pretty harsh. And and I remember what you're what you're making me think about is, um how, you know, there are very much powerful cultural threads that run through this. And, you know, I don't really understand what that kind of interaction means in like the broader context of what it means to be South Asian. And, you know, there's a part of me that's like, you know what, I don't really get it. I don't want to weigh in on something that I um, I'm naive about, you know, it, its details. And then the flip of it is, um, Thinking back, it's funny, my training's very heavy on my mind right now. Um, when I was in my training, we would have long case presentations, and we were very working very, very hard to be culturally sensitive, as we should. And so sometimes we would talk about something that came up in the clinical work that seemed to be informed by the culture of the family. 
And as we danced around it, danced around it, um, I had one supervisor, this wonderful woman, and she'd always say, uh, you know, just because something's cultural doesn't mean it's healthy. Mm. <laughs> it was always like kind of a little bit like, oh, wow. that is true, yes. right? I mean, the British stiff upper lip. Totally. Like, Same thing. It doesn't serve them well, you know? <laughs> and so, so it's one of those funny things, like thinking about it as a clinician, where you both want to be very, very respectful of things that are culturally informed, especially if it's not your culture. And yet I also was so grateful for the supervisor who would always say, you know, you actually clinically, if it's making the kid feel terrible, um, it doesn't matter if it's cultural. Yeah. Like it still doesn't mean it's yeah. good. So yeah, no, I would not be like, oh my God, you're so bad, you know, yeah. whatever. And here's why, here's why. One of the real um, fabulous inventions in psychology in the last couple decades is this idea of growth mindset. And it's one of those things that now has been um, repeated and stretched probably beyond its original utility. But the basic idea is perfection, which is we want kids to think about their capacities as expandable. And sometimes kids get the idea that whatever skills you're born with, those are the only skills you have. And we don't want them to have that idea that most skills can be improved upon with effort. And if you say to a kid, you're so bad at math, you're basically saying, like, you're stuck. You, you can't improve. So what we really want to say is, like, okay, you messed up this assignment. <laughs> you had a hard time with this paper, right? You're like, something didn't go right here. How do you want to fix it? You know, what can you work on to improve? Like, we want to be in that posture. And then the flip, interestingly, Rena, is... We want to be careful about saying, oh, my God, you're so good yes, at math. Look yes. at you. Like, you're dazzling. Because then when the kid has trouble, then they think, like, does this mean I'm bad? Does this mean I'm not smart? So what I would say the big takeaway from all of this is what we want to praise. And kids, we should praise our kids. They care what we think. If you want to praise something, praise effort. Because effort is what your kid controls. And so then... If we want to take it back to this girl question, and if we want to take it back to the letter and this appearance stuff, one way that parents can dig in on that is to say, look, like I know the world gives you a ton of feedback about how girls are supposed to look and bodies and shape. Here's the problem. You have actually very little control over that. You know, mostly how you look, how you, you know, mm -hmm. how you're built, like mostly genetic. Yeah. Like it's really kind of handed to you. Yeah. And yeah, you could go to extreme measures to try to modify it, but why not really put your energy on the stuff you can control? Like how funny you are, how you know interesting you are, all your cool hobbies, school, if it's something that like you know you feel really comfortable and strong in, um, you know, and that's a place that you want to put your energies, you know, we have to have expectations at some level, but we want to also give kids room to be good at lots of other things. And, and to constantly couch, you know, where we want our energies and our kids' energies to be directed. And the more it can be around stuff that they have say over, as opposed to this highly superficial universe of appearance, which is really kind of not something that we can do much about. I think that is actually where you get sturdier self-esteem. So letting them identify early what they can control and work on. Yep. That's great. So Lisa, what do you have for us for Parenting to Go? 
So one of the terms we talk about in psychology is this idea of unconditional positive regard, you know, and that kids deserve that from their parents, to feel liked and valued by their parents no matter what they do. And that holds here. Like, we want our kids to always feel that no matter what they've just done, whether it's glorious or kind of shabby, we think they are wonderful. And so if we are mindful of communicating that all of the time or delighting in them and praising them separate from achievement, we then create the conditions where there is a sense of unconditional positive regard. And within that context, then, we can give warm and loving feedback about when they're doing really well and also areas where they may want to improve. Lisa, you've given us so much to think about this week. Thank you. And next week, we're going to talk about nagging your kids and what else works. I'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well-being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.